really want us to get back to a place where people didn't have to plan their trip. Lived in the city my whole life, have never driven to work, have always, you know, been a tea rider. Can't remember a time I didn't ride the tea. And I really hope that we get back to a place where you just show up at your station and the train comes and you don't have to think about it. So aspirationally, that's where I want to see us. Welcome back to another episode of Spilling the Tea, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the MBTA. I'm your host, Andrew Cassidy of the MBTA's Customer and Employee Experience Department. And in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inner workings and issues facing our organization. Today, we have a special treat for you as we delve into a pivotal aspect of public transportation, the fascinating world of schedules and service delivery at the MBTA. I'm thrilled to be joined by today's guest, Deirdre Habershaw, the Acting Assistant General Manager of Service Development at the MBTA. With a wealth of experience and expertise, Deirdre plays a key role in shaping the schedules and services that keep our region moving. In this episode, we'll journey into the heart of how the MBTA works to provide consistent and efficient service delivery for its riders, and how it deals with planned and unplanned diversions. From in-depth data analysis to optimizing schedules, we'll uncover the interconnected web that drives the service planning of one of the nation's busiest transit systems. Without further delay, let's embark on this trip with our guest, Deirdre Habershaw, as we uncover the intricacies of service delivery at the MBTA. As a note, since the recording of this episode, Deirdre has been promoted to Chief of Staff to the MBTA Chief Operating Officer. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Deirdre. The first question that I have for you is, as the Acting Assistant General Manager of Service Development, can you just provide our audience with an overview of what your role is and what your responsibilities are at the MBTA? So in my current role, I'm within our Department of Operations, Planning, Scheduling, and Strategy, which hosts a number of different teams across the T. So we do all of our service planning, scheduling, our workforce modernization team, operations analytics, lean strategy, bus transformation, transit priority, and contracted bus services. And so I'm one of the senior leaders in this team, along with our chief of OPSS, Wes Edwards. Wes tends to oversee the planning and scheduling side of the house, and I am primarily providing oversight over our workforce modernization team, our contracted bus services team, and bit of the lean strategy and operations analytics teams. So my primary function right now is doing contracted bus services, which is the team that provides alternative service when we take out the rail line. So the buses for the orange line or the speed restriction work we're doing now, or even smaller things like if an elevator is out of service and we need to provide ADA access to connect our riders from a station that has an accessibility issue to a nearby accessible station. So a lot of the planning around that, what is our customer demand? What is the appropriate level of service that we're able to provide so that people can still get to their destination? So that's most of what I'm doing at the moment. With service planning being such like a critical aspect of the MBTA's operations, like what are some of the key factors that you, you know, take into consideration when planning and implementing, you know, either new services entirely or improving on existing ones? Some of the examples that I gave about 
contracted bus services are sort of like the larger scale, you know, outages, you know, a segment of the rail line is out. But on the day to day, our service planners are dealing with minor disruptions that we need to plan around. So it may be a roadway construction project is going on in a municipality, which means a bus stop has to close or move. We need to close or move bus stops just part of our regular everyday business. And so when service planning is looking to do something like that, if we need to respond to either an outside external request or we are looking to upgrade the accessibility at a bus stop, what our service planners do is look at our ridership data. So on bus, for example, we collect ridership information based on the APCs, which is like, you know, when you get on the bus, it counts you. When you get off the bus, it counts you. And so one of the first things that they start to look at is at each actual individual stop level is how many people get on or off this bus every day. So we'll take that piece of analysis and also look at how close is the nearest bus stop. So we have a set of bus stop design guidelines that basically have what is the accurate spacing between stops and how many people are getting on and off so that we can make informed decisions about is it reasonable to close or move this stop? Is the stop we're going to move it to fully accessible? Will someone with a wheeled mobility device be able to board safely in that location? And so our service planners are doing those pieces of analysis every day on that micro level. And that is a type of information that helps us inform bus service. What is the capacity on the bus? We change our schedules four times a year with the changing of the seasons, essentially. And going into that process, our service planners will work with our operations analytics team and bus transportation to figure out where are our customers coming from and going to? Where do we need to, if we're able, add service? Where can we pull some service back in order to bolster service in other locations where we're seeing higher demand? So a lot of that underlying work that they do on a daily basis then also helps inform when we're doing a diversion. We can look at you know how many people are riding that segment of rail line and help us figure out, okay, is there existing fixed route service that we can shift folks to that has enough capacity available that can move those customers? Do we need to bring in an actual replacement shuttle because there isn't the capacity to move that many people in that segment? It's kind of mind-blowing when you really think about how many different factors contribute. I had a very tertiary, you know, 30,000-foot view during the Orange Line shutdown last year. And I remember as far as accessibility, it wasn't just, you know, looking on Google Maps and hoping for the best. I remember, you know, members of your team and others, they took the demo shuttles uh, to kind Mm -hmm. of make sure that buses could take the turns. They were looking for missing bricks, you know, some of the cobblestone streets and, and what have you around Boston, just to make sure that from an accessibility standpoint, there wasn't any sort of physical barrier that might prevent someone from accessing one of the shuttle pickup spots. And again, even just hearing you say it, working here myself, it's still so much to process all the different people and all the different pieces that go into delivering service, whether it be during diversion or just, you know, planning ahead for that next schedule for the season. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, and diversions are sort of like a, we could probably do like a whole, (laughs) you know, episode just on diversion planning, but it is quite complex when you try to take that number of riders, you know, off of our dedicated right of way and bring them to the surface level. And there are just so many more variables. Like you say, like 
bricks, which, you know, we don't control. So a lot of that is leaning on the partnerships with the municipalities. You know, in that particular instance, you know, City of Boston Public Works came out and redid the bricks down by Back Bay. And so, yeah, there's, again, whole other episode on that. (laughs) But there is even just on regular basis, like you say, the number of ons and offs, the, you know, every bus stop is local. Right. So if you are if you are someone who uses that bus stop, that is your first and maybe in some ways only interaction with a MBTA facility. Right. Like that bus stop is essentially an extension of an MBTA facility. And so there are some folks who if that's your stop where you get on and off, like that is the most important stop in the whole system. If you're a property owner and there's one outside of your business or where you live. You may not be thrilled about that bus stop. And so everyone has very strong opinions about bus stops. And so that is something that our team is always trying to balance. How do we make sure we have accessible bus stop locations for folks in a way that balances, you know, where do people need to go and how are they going to get there and what else is sort of around that location? That is a lot of the work that our service planners that work in bus service spend a lot of their time with those nuances. Again, still trying to get my head around it. Uh, (laughs) Service adjustments are sometimes necessary to improve efficiency and match ridership levels. Can you just kind of speak to the considerations that go into how the MBTA decides that a winter schedule is going to be a winter schedule, that a spring schedule is going to be a spring schedule, and what spring 2023 looks like versus spring 2022, and kind of why, I guess, that all happens? So. There are basically like four ingredients to building service. So if your workforce availability, so whether or not that's how many operators, you know, bus operators you have, how many streetcar motor persons on the green line or a motor person on the heavy rail. So red, orange, blue. So we've got personnel, vehicles and runtime and then dispatching, which is sort of further down. That's like in real time dispatchers at the OCC making decisions based on what's going on the in the operations field. operations control the, center. Yeah, yeah operations control center. Exactly. So what our team does is we look at the ridership demand. So how many people are going from where to where. We look at how many personnel we have, how many vehicles we have, how long it takes you to do the trip, and sort of trying to figure out the special sauce on you know, what can we provide? What do people need from us? So good example of this is recently with the summer tunnel shut down and looking at, we only have so many motor persons to drive blue line cars. We know how long it's taking us to get from Bowdoin to Wonderland and realizing that the blue line, which is sort of one of our most I'll call it like resilient line in terms of like it has maintained its ridership. Like even through the pandemic, there are so many folks there who are essential workers who are trying to get to hospitals or what have you. Their ridership times of day are slightly different than the red line. So red line, orange line, we would refer to as like very peaky, meaning like they have higher peaks in the morning and the evening, but they may dip in the middle of the day. It's more of a traditional nine to five. Exactly. A little traditional, more of a nine to five. Although we have found post-pandemic, our service is what we refer to as less peaky, meaning that because folks have that flexibility of working remotely, we don't have like the peak of the peak that we used to have. So service is a little bit more steady during the middle of the day. You see less variation between how much service we have out in the morning versus midday. So with Blue Line, 
we were able to recognize that blue line will likely be steadier throughout the day than our other lines. So we were able to look at our motor persons, look at our cars and realize we could run an additional car in the midday so that we can maintain basically like that six minute headway and provide more frequent trips on the blue line. So similarly, orange line, we've been constrained with the availability of cars. So shifting off our 1200 car series onto the new orange line cars, you know, I think everyone's aware there's been delays in the delivery of those cars. So we were really constrained in the spring, but we knew that for summer, we would have another train set that we would be able to move in. So we work very closely with vehicle engineering and vehicle maintenance so that we can understand what number of cars they anticipate being able to provide to meet car count every day. And so we were able to work with them and realize for summer, we would have another train that we could move in. So we're then slowly adding those back into service. They confirm that they have the cars available. We work with heavy rail operations in their headcount to track, you know, how many people are going to retire? How many folks do we have in training currently? You know, how many people are going to be promoted through the ranks, how many folks might be moving on from rail transportation and taking a position like in the operations control center so that we can figure out, okay, for the next season, so like right now for fall, how many people are you going to have available to operate trains? Sort of like check that box. Vehicle engineering, how many trains are you going to be able to provide us every day? And then we can figure out based on the customer demand, what level of service are we able to provide given the number of cars, the number of people, and how long those trips take. So we are usually in the planning stages for that about 12 weeks before the actual rating starts. So you really start planning the next one, basically right as the other one's going in, you're starting to plan for the next season or next schedule. Yeah, which we refer to as a rating. And so the other thing about this is ratings are not all equal amounts of time. So our summer rating is quite short. So essentially, like this summer, for instance, because the Boston Public School year extended so far towards the end of June, we actually didn't start the summer rating until July 2nd. So the summer rating is really only eight weeks long, but planning for a rating change really takes us about 12 weeks. So essentially, the moment we implemented summer, we we're already planning for fall. And we don't always have the opportunity to sit back and analyze, you know, how is summer rating going? How is summer service? You know, are we actually meeting the service that we scheduled before we're already trying to make plans and change for fall rating? So then how do you, you definitely get the data point from the previous rating. I guess at what point do you get to utilize that information to inform, if not the next one, does that mean like spring informs winter or spring falls fall and summer informs winter? You almost need to look back. This has been one of our challenges with the ridership changes due to the pandemic is that we're sort of trying to balance even like with the bus stop changes that I mentioned earlier. You need to look at a whole universe of things. You need to look back at what was it like last rating? So if you're in the summer, you know, you'll look back, what did spring look like? But you also want to look back at what was the summer of the previous year, right? So if you're looking at, you know, summer 23, well, what was summer 22 like? 
But one of the challenges is we have this blip in ridership because of the pandemic. So, you know, with bus stop changes, we've been looking at, you know, before we make decisions, let's also look back at what was summer 2019 when we can try and extrapolate some decisions sort of like based on those various inputs. One of the things that's sort of related to this question is we have a relatively new team within OPSS, which is our operations analytics team. So all of the things that I mentioned that service planning and scheduling work on or look at, we have a team of analysts that are sort of embedded within our operations team. So what I mean by that is we have an analyst who is dedicated to bus, one to rail, one to training, and one to OCC. And they are working hand in hand with the operations folks to collect and analyze data. This is the first year that we're starting to take that information, that level of information, and use it to directly inform service planning. So one of the things that we do in starting a rating or starting to pull together and confirm what service is going to be for the next service rating, we have service committee where operations analytics brings their analysis. They'll look back at the number of trips, the level of crowding. They'll look at the runtime analysis and be able to look at what did we say we were going to provide? Were we able to provide it? How do we need to make any adjustments so that we can make sure that the next rating is consistent? Because one of the things that I think people appreciate, what we're trying to sort of aim for right now is even if service isn't ideal, even if it isn't as frequent and fast as we would like, that at the least it is reliable so that the service that we have planned, which informs everything like Trip Planner and Google Maps and Apple Maps and all of the different third-party applications that use our data, we want it to be as accurate as possible so that even if you need to wait an extra two minutes for your orange line train to arrive, you know when it's going to arrive and you can plan your trip around it. So we look at that analysis. We do a look back and say, you know, where were we off? Was there something that we could have done to change something in the schedule? And we sit with the operations folks, the bus garages, everyone is able to come and have a discussion and we can get feedback from our operators who are out there in real time so that we can make adjustments about when certain pullouts will be or what route will be taken, et cetera. So you mentioned you have the data analytics team and obviously, you know, hard data is incredibly important, but there's also the piece where we do have eyes and ears out in the field. So how is it that your team is working with those kind of frontline employees, the operators, inspectors, what have you, to inform planning decisions? Going into every rating or finalizing the schedule for every rating, our scheduling team hosts service committee. So we have separated them out. We have bus service committee, rail service committee, and we've actually even in the last year split out heavy rail from light rail. So red, orange, blue from Green Line in Mattapan, which is also light rail. And so we meet with each bus garage. Like you mentioned, our personnel from the bus garages come to the meeting, which is currently held virtual, which I think is in some ways good, in some ways bad. It means that we can have more folks sort of join and participate. And we hear from operators, from barn captains who will 
were poured out on things like, it's really taking me X number of minutes to get from this location to that location. Or one of the things that we are trying to be very cognizant of is, are operators able to get their break? Are they able to have access to a restroom facility? Things like that that are really critical to them being able to sort of like be happy and healthy and functional in their job as a human being. And so we try our best to incorporate feedback from them so that we can plan our service appropriately to sort of meet their needs and also hear back, you know, from them as to what they're seeing on a day to day so that we can take that into consideration in building the next rating. Interesting. I think one thing I wanted to touch upon that you had kind of mentioned as one of the ingredients in making your special stew of schedules is employee availability. And, you know, the more we talk, the more it becomes obvious that the MBTA is this interconnected web where, you know, everything's touching everything and you can't do something in one place without impacting the other. It's no secret that the MBTA has been having issues with operator shortages. We've been pushing hard for hiring additional personnel, adding additional incentives, sign-on bonuses, increasing hourly rates. So, you know, that's one part and that's obviously, you know, going to make a difference as to, you know, whether or not somebody's available to drive your train or drive your bus. But I, I also remember back a little while ago there was an issue where we had a dispatcher shortage. And that was a term I think a lot of people were less familiar with because, you know, the average rider does not interact with the dispatcher throughout their commute. Can you speak to, I guess, all the different kind of roles? Again, we know that these are out there. We know that there's a shortage. We see that the MBTA is doing what it can to hire and bring on more people. But I guess all the different pieces that need to add up, what considerations do you take as far as personnel when it comes to determining that? And what do you say to the rider that says, why can't you run more trains? Because, you know, we see it all the time. Why aren't there more buses? Why is the headway this? And I guess what that interrelation is with the personnel piece. The way that we do that on our end is somewhat extended or we're a little bit removed, but the way that it impacts us sort of the most. So the dispatcher is a great example. So we don't plan service around, you know, how many dispatchers do we have in the OCC? But what ends up happening is a lot of our other positions, like our operator positions, are essentially feeder pools for dispatchers. And to be honest, I would need a list of every <laughs> position, whether or not it's an official inspector or supervisor, a yard master. There's a whole series of job classes within like heavy rail operations. And so the way that that sort of impacts service planning is sort of what I was mentioning earlier about promotions and retirements and attrition. So last summer, when we had to hire additional staff to dispatch and supervise in the OCC, the individuals that were promoted into those new roles came from the pool of motor persons. We also set up a new job class of like yard master within heavy rail operations. And that position had to be filled by someone who had experience as a motor person. I remember, again, with the dispatcher issue, people are like, oh, just hire dispatchers as if, you know, you could just put out a help wanted sign. But you do need people that have that institutional knowledge. And every time you succeed by filling that role, you are still taking from the pot of frontline individuals, which means that even though you fill the role, you now have another one to fill. Exactly. So it's kind of a net 
zero issue. No, absolutely. And and it's the same, you know, for our operations roles, like our operators, but it's also true for so many other roles across the T. You know, I'll be so excited. I'll be high-fiving a colleague, you know, when they hire someone, you know, was it internal or external, like a net new people. Anytime yeah. someone gets someone that is coming from an outside organization, first of all, it's great just to bring a fresh perspective, but it's also like, High five. Yeah, we added net, an extra. Net new people. <laughs> net new people. We didn't, we didn't just, you know, poach from some other department, yep. you know. So it's a challenge for sure. I guess another thing that you had touched upon, because again, I'm picking apart everything mm-hmm. you've said. But another thing that I thought was kind of interesting is, so you're using the historical data from previous years to inform schedules for the future. However, the past few years have not been predictable. Obviously, 2020 was insanity, you know, throw out the rule book. But even as we, you know, come out of the pandemic or enter a new phase of it, at least, you can't quite just go back to 2019 and say, oh, let's just pick up where we started. You mentioned hybrid schedules. You mentioned, you know, less peaky, more of a flattened curve when it comes to when people are riding, what days they're riding. If it's not Monday through Friday, it's more Tuesday through Thursday, I think it is now. You have to be a bit of a pioneer because, you know, the historical data is, I don't want to say useless, but far less valuable than it had been in the past. So, you know, every year is very different. Maybe we're stabilizing a little bit, you know, effective this year, maybe last year. But without that kind of historical piece, what ways, what technologies, what new things have you had to adopt to be able to, you know, adapt and provide the correct service for the demand for the riders that are there now? Big question, I know. That is a really big question. <laughs> it's, it's a really big question. And I think, you know, not that I want to completely punt it, but I think it's probably a better question for some of my colleagues because they are looking sort of more long-term to the future, particularly bus network redesign, which would make another great episode of this yeah. podcast. Yeah. You know, bus network redesign is our sort of like generational change in bus service. I think uh, it's the first major change in bus service for like 25 years. And that was really looking at, you know, how has land use changed? You know, where do we have housing where we didn't before as a region? You know, a great example, I think, is, you know, when you look back, you know, before Assembly Square existed, you know, there's been so much development in and around the Somerville area in the last 15 years. What's that going to continue to look like for the next five to 10 or further out? I think that you could say that about so many different corners of the Commonwealth. And so, you know, Wes, who does a lot of our work with MassDOT and external relations, they could probably give you many, many examples as opposed to sort of like the day-to-day rating to rating sort of change. So I don't think anyone has to think too hard to remember back in March of this year, speed restrictions across the entire system are put in place kind of without any real preparation. I remember getting the calls myself. I'm sure your phone was ringing quite extensively as well. But, you know, the entire region really was brought to a crawl. And the lingering effects of the speed restrictions are still being felt today. You know, we have the dashboard. You can see exactly where everything's happening. How is it that you and your colleagues navigated this crisis in that 
sudden moment, but then have also over the course of several months found ways to reduce the impact on our riders? Great question. And I would say that we are still navigating it. Oh, yeah. And just like our riders. So full disclosure, I'm an Ashmont branch rider. So definitely our riders are experiencing this in tremendous ways. And I feel that it has also caused a number of challenges for service planning and for operations analytics. So as I mentioned, one of the major variables in planning the rating is runtime. And so essentially overnight, our schedules were no longer feasible. And the degree to which each line is affected varies quite a bit. So our blue line riders were seeing sort of like the least amount of impact. Their run times were longer, but not to the same proportion that our orange line and certainly our red line riders were. So that weekend that that happened, or like that, I think it was like a Thursday night, was right before the rating change. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right. (laughs) And so we essentially never really got to implement our spring rating. So the rating typically goes into effect on a Sunday. So that was right in the midst of when the global speed restriction order was put in. And so it was taking us a while, actually, even to be able to very clearly say what the impact was. When we look back at Thursday, we weren't running the same schedule that we were going to be running that Monday. So we had to react pretty quickly. And actually, the course of that weekend was, you know, on a number of calls with our folks on our operations analytics team trying to figure out what the impact was. You know, we were asked initially sort of what is the runtime like end to end, right? Most of our customers don't ride end to end, right? So it's extremely rare that someone's going to get on the train at Braintree and ride all the way to Elwife. One of the things that we've been trying to do is really accurately measure what the customer impact is. And so what our operations analytics team has been doing since that very first day, and they do it every day, is what is the runtime from Elwife to Park, from Braintree to Park, Ashmont to Park, Forest Hills to Downtown Crossing, Oak Grove to Downtown Crossing, and Bowdoin to Wonderland in both directions, sort of like in those segments so that we can get somewhat of an idea of like those sort of like major travel patterns, what is impacting customers. And they run that analysis every day for the day before. And so we can see how it has adjusted. But one of the things we had to do right away was we realized we were going to need to build new schedules for spring. So our rail schedulers We have two rail schedulers. One does red and orange and the other does blue and green. They looked at the runtime analysis. Once things normalized or leveled off, once we stopped seeing the really day-to-day variation as restrictions were lifted and the global order was lifted, they looked at the runtime, looked at our motor person's vehicles and built new schedules. For the blue line, we actually ended up never running that schedule and we stuck to the spring rating schedule because their variation was so minor and we had the plan in place to lift the number of restrictions that it didn't make sense to shift to a new schedule. So we maintained the original spring schedule throughout the spring rating. For Orange Line, we did run the new schedule, but it was close enough to the existing schedule that we didn't need to do what we call a repick. So Once service planning builds the service level, 
our scheduling team comes in and carves up all of that work into essentially shifts that personnel pick. So with every rating change, there's a pick that goes along with it. Based on operator seniority, people can pick what shift they want. So, you know, I want to drive on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but I want Mondays off, you know, based on seniority in our CBA. The rail vehicle schedule was close enough to the personnel schedule that we could run the new train schedule and use the same crew schedule to maintain the orange line. So we were able to implement that schedule pretty quickly. Red line, however, red line is much more complex to operate, particularly because of the branches. And so in an ideal world, if we could pick all the things and we could implement whatever runtime we wanted, we would have three Braintree to Alewife round trips and four Ashmont to Alewife round trips within a motor person's schedule. Once the change in runtime happened, we could no longer maintain that. So we could only do, and it was very, very, very tight, two round trips, Braintree to Alewife, before we would need another motor person to essentially swing on and take the train so that that operator could get their mandatory break. So it's quite the science to manage, you know, the people that need to manage the system and merge those two branches so that we have a consistent headway through what we refer to as the trunk. So anything, you know, north of JFK up through Elwhite so that we don't have a wobble between a Braintree and an Ashmont train coming back to back within the trunk. We built the new vehicle schedule based off of the runtime, but it was so wildly different from the crew schedule that we could not implement it without all of the personnel having to repick. So there was a delay in implementing the red line spring schedule while we pulled all of the levers we needed to pull so that our motor persons could pick new work. So it was a lot of work for our team, the scheduling team, operations analytics, and our workforce modernization team. Workforce modernization, which is within OPSS, sort of manages the pick along with heavy rail, but they're the ones that sort of with scheduling do all of the logistics related to operator picking. And so it was a lot of work for us to do all of those things to repick. So it was a lot of administrative work for our teams within operations analytics, schedules, and workforce modernization, but it also was very disruptive for our motor persons in our redline staff. Essentially, you thought you had an idea of what your work schedule was going to be for the spring, only to now have to change that. We sort of had to walk a fine line between building a vehicle schedule and a crew schedule for folks to pick that wasn't that wildly different from their normal day-to-day. So if I'm a motor person and I work on the red line, I've picked work based on whatever my own life circumstances are, right? I have childcare that I need to work around or whatever my spouse or partner, whatever their work situation is. And they build their lives around that, as we all do. They had to then pick new work. And my understanding is that there are only two instances where we have ever repicked. One was the pandemic. And the second was to repick the red line because of the speed restriction. We've been here for both. (laughs) And we've been here for both. 
So that is one way that's sort of like in the immediate. But even now, day to day, one of the ways that this has impacted us is for better or for worse, as they have improved runtime, that is also causing challenges for the schedule. So one of the things that we have done is in our schedules, we typically have the schedule and then we have what we've referred to in recent years as the emergency schedule. Typically, it's used during the winter, right? So sometimes, you know, when we have a snowstorm, MBTA is running an emergency schedule. So what we did for summer and what we're doing again for fall is instead of having a emergency schedule, we've built a conservative schedule and an optimistic schedule and have our motor persons pick both of those things. And so one of the things that I've been doing is working closely with our teams that are doing the track work and planning the diversions to try and predict what run times may be the next rating. So it's particularly challenging for the red line because I mentioned we've got to balance those branches as we bring them through. So we look at up until that service committee meeting, tracking what the run times are and building a schedule that says, okay, let's assume no other improvements are made between now and the rating start. Let's go with this runtime, and that will be our conservative schedule. An optimistic schedule is then assuming that X number of minutes are reduced in this area or that area. What could service be? And each of the rail lines has sort of a different scenario for what that is. For Orange Line, it may be a combination of do they make certain runtime improvements? Do we get another car? Can we run 12 trains in the fall on the Orange Line? And so we're sort of building both things. So we have options available to us. We're not locked into, right, we're not locked into one guess that we made 12 weeks ago. We at least have two guesses, (laughs) right? And then that is where dispatching comes in, right? So we have built a vehicle schedule. We've built a crew schedule. Our red line, orange line, blue line operators are out there. Train starters are doing their best to meet it. And dispatchers at the operations control center are making real-time decisions. And sort of those four sort of pieces all sort of work together to produce service for everyone. Honestly, it's fascinating. It is. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you definitely yeah. have your work cut out for you. I don't know how you keep it all in your head, truthfully. You are a fount of knowledge uh, when it comes to this. And I, I think our riders benefit from having you be one of the people who really helps prepare the system for the kind of unpredictable nature that follows it. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it's definitely, it is a very big team of people. I think I am in a unique position, I think, because I can see sort of all of the pieces, but it really is the work of our analysts, our service planners, our schedulers. You know, as I mentioned, we've got two gentlemen who do the schedules and I would be lost without them. So I'm very lucky that we have a team of really like subject matter experts that I can tap to and say, hey, we have this problem. You know, I I don't know how to fix it yet, but I've identified a problem and I need your brain power so that we can like sit and figure out what options do we have to do our best to improve service given the lack of resources, whether or not it's time, vehicles, people. No, there's a lot of intricacies to to take into account to determine what the, you know, the best solution available is. It's good to see that in action. So 
what are your aspirations for the future of the MBTA's transit services? Are there any projects that are currently in motion or upcoming that you're particularly excited about? So I think two things. Aspirationally, I agree with the general manager. I really want us to get back to a place where people didn't have to plan their trip. 100%. Right? Lived in the city my whole life, have never driven to work, have always, you know, been a tea rider. Can't remember a time I didn't ride the tea. And I really hope that we get back to a place where you just show up at your station and the train comes and you don't have to think about it. It's the best. It's the best. So aspirationally, that's where I want to see us. In terms of projects that get me excited, some of them are probably pretty boring to people. They're like, <laughs> literally like, I can't wait until we can ingest that data. But two things I'm really looking forward to is new redline cars and Mattapan transformation. I live at Ashmont. I know it's a difficult thing. I know yep. people who feel Ooh. so passionately yeah, about I'm, the I'm PTC cars, yep. right? I mean, I love to take my kids to ride them and get ice cream at the yeah. ice cream smith, but I am really looking forward to whatever day it is that we have the same type of service that's on the D line through Milton, Dorchester, Mattapan. Absolutely. So I love the PCCs too, but service has to come first. Service has to come first. Accessibility has to come first. Absolutely. That is going to be a difficult one to see implemented, but I'm really excited. I can't wait to see the day that that comes to fruition. Well, lots to look forward to. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge with us. It has been a very educational time. I'm sure I'll still be processing much of this and calling you probably an hour from now just to kind of ask you more things and learn more from you. But thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate your time. Anytime. Reach out. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. hope you found this episode with our guest, Deirdre Habershaw, as enlightening and insightful as I did. As we conclude, I want to extend my gratitude to Deirdre for generously sharing her time and knowledge with us. Her valuable contributions to this transportation industry will undoubtedly leave a lasting impact on the experiences of the riders and communities they serve. I also want to thank you, our incredible audience, for joining us on this journey. Your support and engagement with Spilling the Tea make it all worthwhile. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite platforms to help us reach more listeners who share our passion for transparent and insightful conversations about the MBTA. If you have any suggestions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out. Your input is invaluable in shaping the content we bring to you. As always, stay connected with the T through our website and social media channels to learn about our latest updates, initiatives, and opportunities. Until next time, I'm Andrew, and this has been Spilling the Tea.